0: the Holy Gospel according to Luke, the third chapter. Glory to you, Lord. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you by, with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you, I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and Redeemer. Chapter 1 They were, they remain today, the chosen ones of God... The descendants of Abraham and Sarah whom God had chosen and had promised to bless so that through their descendants God might reach with God's blessings to all the nations and peoples on earth. Big, big, big picture Bible theme. God never blesses just for the sake of the blessed. God blesses every single time that the blessed might be a blessing. When God asked of Abraham and Sarah and their descendants, was that they trust God, which of course meant not giving their hearts and ultimate trust to others. That, that things that others call gods and treat like gods. And so centuries later, when through Moses came the commandments to lend some furthered articulation and definition to that relationship with God and the descendants of Abraham, the commandments were introduced with the words, I am the Lord your God, and then followed by the first of the commandments, you shall have no other gods. Nine more commandments follow that first one. And by the time you've read the nine, it becomes clear, or it is surely meant to become clear, that trusting God includes worshiping God. And worshiping God includes loving God. And loving God includes obeying God. And obeying God includes loving your neighbor. Loving God without loving your neighbor, in the Bible's clearest way of thinking, is not loving God at all. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, as the Old Testament story unfolds, that is to say, as the love story of God and God's chosen unfolds, it all over and again proves, as it turns out, to be too much for God's dearly beloved. For again and again and again in the Old Testament love story of the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, both Of the leaders and those whom they led, though oftentimes generally continuing to give some kind of lip service to God, did in the depths of their hearts and in the actions of their lives, the way they lived their lives and treated others, turn from the loving desires of God as they turned instead to the desires of other gods. At best I can, I point that out to you without judgment. For I know full well that I, I think I know full well that we, who call the God of Abraham and Sarah our God and gather to worship God, nevertheless have as well at times turned to the love and the desires of others whom the world often does view as gods, like money or power. Or pleasure, or popularity, or materialism, or nationalism, or though we like to give it nicer names, racism, all of which are actually offspring of this world's most worshiped God. That being the God worshiped in the cult of me and me first and me best, and ultimately me only, ism. It was the prophets through the centuries who called God's people back to faith in God and back to obedience to the loving desires of God with very few exceptions in the Old Testament story. The prophets were roundly and then increasingly not just ignored, but also ridiculed and in more than a few cases even killed. Prophets, you see, were God's honest truth-tellers. And the fact is, then and now, that people and nations who have turned or are in the process of turning from God don't like the God's honest truth. And that's the honest-to-God truth. Which means that a sure sign that a person or a people or a nation are turned not toward but from God, is that they don't want to hear or own truth. After what God determines to be enough of that, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah said that if God's honest truth spoken to them would not turn them from their sin, then perhaps consequences would. And in what Jeremiah and Isaiah and others all deemed to be the consequence above all consequences, the Babylonian Empire conquered Judea and its capital Jerusalem, looted and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, leveled the city's walls, killed thousands in the process, and then took the best and the brightest of those who remained to slavery and exile in Babylon. Where they suffered... And where, gradually, finally, suffering, they prayed. And praying, they repented, turned their backs, turned their hearts back to their God. And repenting, They heard the prophet Isaiah speaking now in the words of our first reading for today, not of judgment, but of hope. As he said, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not fear, for I am with you. And I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Do you hear that in those words, God not only calls God's people home again, but promises to lead them there? Because though, yes, they had sinned, and though, yes, there were consequences for sin, as there always are in one way or another, there was one consequence that was not and never would be. For they were still and had never stopped being, oh, so loved. And oh, so loved is what they would ever and always be. It's how it is in God's relationship with those whom God has called God's own. Sin will have consequences in this world for sure, but sin does not hold in its hands the final consequence. For named by God and beloved of God, the final consequence is held in the arms and in the heart of the love of God. And though it may not all be easy, says God through Isaiah, to God's chosen ones named Israel, though you may well have some hard paths to walk, things that feel like deep waters or raging fires to walk through, do not, says God through the prophet, do not ever fear. No matter what you find yourself needing to walk through, for God says through God's prophet Isaiah, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Chapter 2. It was... Give or take a decade or three. 575 years later, when a descendant of Abraham and Sarah named Jesus approached his cousin, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah named John, who was baptizing Jews from Jerusalem and Judea, who came to him in the Judean wilderness, and he was baptizing them with a baptism called a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Baptism, baptisma in the original Greek, simply as a word, originally simply meant washing oftentimes a ritual kind of washing. And it's important to be clear, the baptismal washing John washed people yet with was not yet the same as the baptism Jesus would one day tell his followers to wash people with. For whereas the washing Jesus will command is above all about things God is promising and doing, the washing John is presiding over is largely about what they, the people, were doing. And what they were to be doing, because John told them to, is the same thing prophets for centuries had told people to do, which is to turn toward their God by turning from their sin. And now in John's case, as a symbol of the fact that they were really and truly sincere about doing that, to have John then symbolically wash them clean after they were done confessing themselves clean. But then with John now speaking as the last of the Bible's prophets, he's known as that. He spoke now to them in a way that his forebears in centuries past had not been able to speak as he speaks now in the very, very short term to say something that they, these prophets before him, had only been able to say speaking in the very long term. That being that the reason to confess their sins and clean up their act was because the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Christ, whom God had promised for centuries, was coming to them soon. Soon and very soon. Now, in fact, said John. And you, said John, when he comes don't want him finding you in your sin you want him finding you cleaned up of your sin and John was a true prophet and the things true prophets say come true and so indeed along came John's cousin to be baptized with all those sinners Luke doesn't say, Matthew does, that John wondered why in the world he should be baptizing Jesus who had no sin, Jesus said in Matthew, because it's the right thing to do. And John accepted that and baptized him. You, like John, may wonder too why Jesus was baptized with John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin when he had no sin on his shoulders. I am in the camp of those who, including Luther, as I understand him, answer that by saying that he did so at the very beginning of his ministry as a way of already foreshadowing the cross he would bear come the end of his ministry, a cross upon which he, as Luther observed in an often misunderstood quote, a cross upon which he, Luther said, would die as the worst sinner in the history of the world. For the sin hanging guiltily upon him would be the sin of the whole world. Why, in other words, did Jesus kneel in the waters of baptism for sinners? Because as Paul would later observe, he came to become our sin that we, through him, might become his righteousness. Now a significant detail Though Jesus' baptism by John to that point was pretty much identical to the baptism which John had baptized thousands of others at the conclusion of his baptism, say Matthew and Mark and Luke and even in his own way John, two things happened that had never happened when John had baptized anyone else before. Those two things being, first of all, that the Holy Spirit of God visibly, in this case in the form of a dove, came down from heaven and a lit upon him. And then too, a voice, this had never happened before, a voice, a voice from heaven, declared that Jesus, Mary and Joseph's beloved son, was actually to, and maybe of course above all, the beloved son of God. It's not entirely clear in scripture who actually heard and understood that voice from heaven. From my reading of the four gospels, I think Probably two people heard and understood Jesus for sure, and John pretty much for sure. Jesus' baptism, say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and again in his own way, John, marked the beginning of his public ministry. As from those waters he went out now into the world to be for the sake of the world whom God had declared him to be the Son, the Son of God, whom God had given him to the world to be. Chapter 3. It was give or take a decade or ten, 1,990 years later, when someone named you in most of our cases, as an infant, was brought to the waters of the sacrament of Christian baptism. Where, teach the majority of Christians, except, in my opinion, those who get skitterish, nervous about grace, where versions of the same two first of a kind things that happened in the waters of Jesus' baptism by John happened again in the waters of the baptism of you. Those two things being that as the waters were poured upon you, the Holy Spirit of God was visibly, not in this case as a dove, but as water, poured out upon you. And two, in addition to the Spirit from heaven, poured out upon you a voice, a voice from heaven spoke of you, speaking first as it called you by name. And then speaking next to say to you, You are my beloved, my child. And to that promise, Scripture actually invites us to add even more promises including the promise that sin won't tear you from the promise that you are God's own, for the God whose grace calls you God's own is God, the Father of our Lord Lord Jesus Christ, who died for and died with your sin. And then, too, comes the promise that neither will death tear you from the promise that you are God's own. For the God whose grace calls you God's own, being God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is also the God of Easter, who raises the dead unto eternal life in the arms of eternal love. And it is, it is all, all of it, grace. It is all, all of it, a gift. And God invites you. Indeed, Luther would say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is God who empowers you fully to know the gift here and now in this world of sin and death by receiving it in faith. Faith in the one whose love for you is a power more powerful than either sin or death. And then, and then led by the Spirit, God calls you forth into the rest of your life by calling you forth into the world to live into your specific version of the very same call with which he called Jesus in the waters of his baptism, that being the call daily and to the end of your life on this earth to be in the specific way God gives you to be and equips you to be, to be who God in God's grace in the waters of baptism has made you to be, God's own child, blessed and beloved, to bless and to be love, God's love, not just for you, but for God's broken but yet oh-so-loved world. Clearest of all clear notes to self this morning. You are not sent out into the world to do anything God calls you to be so that you might therefore become God's child. You are sent out into the world to do all that you do because you are, by God, God's child. In answer to that call, and at this beginning of a new year, I invite those of you who would like to join me in concluding this message on the baptism of our Lord Sunday with the rite of affirmation of baptism that is printed in your bulletins. If you'd like to join in, please stand. Dear friends, I invite you to join me in affirming your desire to grow into the identity which God gave you in baptism. You are a child of God. Let us pray. Merciful God, we thank you that you have made us your own by water and the word in baptism. You have called us to yourself, enlightened us with the gifts of your spirit, and nourished us in the community of faith. Uphold us and all your servants in the gifts and promises of baptism and unite the hearts of all whom you have brought to new birth. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. I ask you to profess your faith in Christ Jesus, to reject sin and confess the faith of the church, the faith in which you were baptized. Do you renounce the devil and all the forces that defy God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the powers of this world that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the ways of sin that draw you from God? I renounce them. Do you believe in God the Father? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, On the thir- ascended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in God, the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, union of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You have made public profession of your faith. Do you intend to continue in the covenant God made with you in Holy Baptism? To live among God's faithful people? To hear the word of God and share in the Lord's Supper? To proclaim the good news of God in Christ through word and deed? To serve all people following the example of Jesus? And to strive for justice and peace in all the earth? I do, and I ask God to help and guide me. And people of God, you promise to support and pray for one another in your life in Christ. We do, and we ask God to help and guide us. Let us pray. We give you thanks, O God, that through water and the Holy Spirit you give us new birth, cleanse us from sin, and raise us to eternal life. Stir up in your people the gift of your Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the spirit of joy in your presence, both now and forever. Amen. With that in mind, I repeat some words you heard about a half hour ago when Deacon Pam spoke them. Rejoice in this good news. In Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You are descendants of the Most High, adopted into the household of Christ, and inheritors of eternal life. Live as freed and forgiven children of God. Amen.